brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, just trying to stay healthy, wealthy, and wise in an era of poor nutrition coupled with high toxicity. Massive economic fallout from bad political policies and from within a populace that has been conditioned towards less and less critical thinking. So not an easy thing to do when the deck is stacked against us like it is, because the oily appendages of the nefarious few have weaved through the corporate food industry and wiggled their way into medicine, science, education, and their own regulatory agencies. Getting everyone so confused and ignorant over the proper path to health that it's actually quite scary. And this coordination across all the key areas for health and wellness almost makes one think someone's actively working to make our minds foggy and our bodies weak. But there are lights in the darkness, people, like today's powerhouse guest, Sally Fallon Morell, who is a master of the culinary arts and an expert in proper nutrition who is best known for her quintessential cookbook and healthy eating guide, Nourishing Traditions, the cookbook that challenges politically correct nutrition and the diet dictocrats which has sold over half a million copies and spawned a whole series of great books in the Nourishing Tradition series, including the book of Baby and Child Care, co-authored by Dr. Thomas Cowan, Nourishing Broth, an old-fashioned remedy for the modern world, and Nourishing Fats, why we need animal fats for health and wellness. Sally is also the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation, which is dedicated to education, research, and activism in the fields of nutrition and food production by providing the scientific validation for traditional foodways. She also serves as editor of the foundation's quarterly journal, Wise Traditions, Food, Farming, and the Healing Arts. It is a true honor and a pleasure to have her here, the nourishing traditions teacher, activist, author, and the supreme queen of the culinary arts. Sally, <laughs> welcome to the higher side. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. I couldn't be more psyched. Thanks for your time. I really can't say enough good things about nourishing traditions, the cookbook, which is really like a full proper cooking course for avoiding corporate food and relearning the skills and traditions that industrialized society is weeded out of us. <laughs> and to kick this off, let me ask you to tell the people about Weston A. Price and the work that he did. Obviously, you found it pretty important since you founded the foundation in his name. What can you tell us about his work and how the foundation carries it forward? Right. So Dr. Price was actually a dentist and he worked in the 30s and 40s. He had a very busy practice in Cleveland, Ohio. But in the summers, he and his wife went on these trips to isolated parts of the world. He wanted to see what the dental health was of these isolated people. And he found 14 groups that had perfect dental health. That is, they had broad faces, naturally straight teeth, and no cavities. And along with that, correspondingly, he found that those with this excellent dental health had excellent overall health. They were strong and sturdy and good posture, and they didn't seem to suffer from any diseases. So then his question was, what kind of diet ensures these perfect teeth and overall good health? 
And this is really interesting what he found. I mean, their diets were different all over the world. The people of the South Seas were not eating the same things as the Eskimos. And the people of the Switzerland were not eating the same things as the Gaelic inhabitants of the Irish Outer Hebrides. But there were some commonalities in all these diets. And the main one was that they had very high levels of what we call fat-soluble vitamins. That's vitamins A, D, and K. And where do we get these fat-soluble vitamins? We get them from animal fats, animal organ meats, certain types of seafood, butter, egg yolks, especially from grass-fed animals. So the number of foods that supply these critical nutrients is rather limited. But the interesting thing is that these are the foods that we're being told to avoid. These are the high cholesterol foods, rich in fat, rich in saturated fat. And we're told that these are bad for us and that we shouldn't eat them by the long pointy fingers of the diet dictocrats. <laughs> so, so the very diet that makes us healthy, that helps us have healthy children, which is really where our focus is, that keeps our brains active and thinking, the very diet that makes us healthy, independent individuals is being discouraged, is, is highly discouraged, and actually quite difficult to achieve unless you make some very special efforts. So we set up the Weston A. Price Foundation to provide accurate information about nutrition. We don't have any ties with the food industry or the government or any kind of corporate entities, and not only teach people about nutrition, but to help make these foods available. And we do that through a system of local chapters. Let's just say you want some raw milk from grass-fed cows or you want some pastured eggs, which, of course, usually are not sold in stores. You would call your local chapter leader, and they'll tell you where these foods are available in the place that you live. Mm. So it's, you know, teaching people the right kind of diet and then helping them find the foods. Nice. I love it. And that is a pretty good introductory summary. I had this written down too, that when Dr. Price was comparing these different groups, obviously, as you said, they're from all over the world. Well, he had many opportunities to compare these healthy so-called primitives with members of the same racial group who had become civilized and were yes. living on the products of the Industrial Revolution, right. including refined grains, canned foods, pasteurized milk and sugar. In these people, he found rampant tooth decay, infectious disease, degenerative illness, and infertility. Children born to traditional people who had adopted the industrialized diet had crowded and crooked teeth narrowed faces, deformities of bone structure, and susceptibility to every sort of medical problem. So there's definitely a comparison to the same types of people, the same genetics, and the only real factor that's different is the industrialized diet. Right. And he did his work at exactly the right time. Of course, that's the universe at work for you. But um, <laughs> he did this work when there still existed these primitive groups. And he used the word primitive as a compliment. It wasn't a put down. But he could get there with modern transportation, and he had a camera so he could take photographs. And these photographs are worth thousands of words because you see side by side the robust, beautiful, wide faces of the healthy traditional people and what happened to their offspring when they changed to the white man's food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that too. The 1930s seems like total synchronicity, the perfect opportunity. Camera technology is there. The industrialized <laughs> diet hasn't gotten to all those isolated pockets yet. Right. Just some, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And so as the subtitle of the book says, you challenge politically correct nutrition and the diet dictocrats and have been for over 20 years. Some of the advice now might seem less radical than it sounded in 1999, thanks to the work you've done. But what are some of the most pervasive pieces of misinformation that you've had to fight against? Well, first and foremost is the misinformation about fats. And my co-author was a lipid biochemist, and she shared my concerns and was actually able to help me explain why the recommendations to use polyunsaturated industrial seed oils was the quick slide into poor health 
compared to using the saturated animal fats, rich in cholesterol and rich in vitamins. So that is just the number one stumbling block that people have. They've been so indoctrinated that, you know, animal fats are bad and that these vegetable oils are good for their heart and going to prevent cancer and all these other things. And nothing could be further from the truth. The vegetable oils, the soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil, all these oils are extremely damaging to our bodies. They're rancid. They change, and this is really important, they change the structure of your cell membrane. So every cell is surrounded by this membrane, this covering, and the membrane is made up of fat molecules. And these fat molecules, for your cells to work properly, these fat molecules need to be mostly saturated. And if you are eating the industrial fats and oils, your cell membranes are going to contain a lot of polyunsaturated fat molecules. And that makes your cell membranes kind of floppy and leaky. That's exactly the right term, floppy and leaky. So you don't have good stable structure on the cellular level. And my colleague and I, Tom Cowan, have just written a book called The Contagion Myth, which is mm. you can pre-order now on Amazon. But we talk a lot in that book about the water structure in your cells because we're electrical beings. And against those good, firm, well-constructed cell membranes, I don't want to get too technical, but the water structures itself and creates a separation of charge and creates a kind of battery or a web of wires in your cells. And today with the electromagnetic radiation, especially the 5G, those water structures are constantly being bombarded. So the more integrity there is in the cell membrane, the better you are going to be able to live with this. Mm. And that comes first and foremost from eating the right fats. Right. And I'm glad you were on that page because we've had Dr. Pollock here talking about structured water. Yeah. Dr. Dana Cohen, who co-wrote the book Quench, about getting that structured water into our cells. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of taken me down a weird path. And I sometimes yeah. get feedback that's like, why is a conspiracy show doing episodes about water and cooking? And I was like, well, this is the best way to fight back. How many times do you need to hear that the information we get is wrong? Well, then what's the right information? They say the best revenge is living well. Well, I'm trying here. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the nice thing about our diet, and it's hard for people at first because you really have to think about what you're eating. And traditional cultures didn't have to think about what they were eating. They just ate what was there. They knew what was the right thing to eat. Now we have become civilized people, and it's part of our spiritual evolution to have to think about everything. It's the development of our thinking capacity. So we have to think about everything we put into our mouths. Where does this food come from? How it's been prepared? And we have to know and apply that knowledge to how we eat. However, the good news is that this diet is actually the most delicious diet you could possibly eat. It's really satisfying. You can have all the butter you want. You can have dairy products. You can have fats. You can have meats. You can have sauces, beautiful velvety sauces. You can have some sweet things. You can have all the salt you want if it's the right kind of salt. So there's no renunciation with this diet, but it requires thinking mm -hmm. to put it into practice. Yes. And vitamin A is one of the ones you mentioned. And I learned from listening to you that it is part and parcel with vitamin D. We talk about vitamin D a lot. Sunlight, very important. Right. But vitamin A, less so. Talk to us about how those two relate and its importance. Right. So the fat-soluble vitamins are A, D, and K. And if you just take a vitamin D supplement, you will become deficient in A and K. If you take a vitamin K supplement, you'll become deficient in A and D. So you need all three vitamins together. They form a kind of triangle and they all need to be there or they're going to be harmful to you. And that's why we recommend getting them from food because they tend to coexist in the same foods. So yeah, they support each other. And 
I always talk about the vitamin hit parade because right now vitamin D is at the top of the hit parade. And everybody's taking huge amounts of synthetic vitamin D, you know, five grams a day or whatever it is, 5,000 international units a day. And this is not what we recommend at all. Now, the interesting thing is that in Dr. Price's day, vitamin A was at the top of the vitamin hit parade. <laughs> it was really been studied and people realized how important it was. And the last 50 years, the diet dictocrats have been demonizing vitamin A and telling people it's toxic and they should avoid it and stuff. And I've noticed a flurry of demonization recently against vitamin A. <laughs> but so they're always out there, you know, trying to make you doubt what's right. But yes, you need all three vitamins and vitamin A is absolutely critical for thinking. Absolutely critical for thinking. And I'm not talking about the vitamin A in your vitamin pills. That's just one isomer. It's not the isomer your brain uses anyway. So you need to get the natural vitamin A from food. You need to eat liver one way or another once or twice a week. That's kind of fundamental. You need to use butter. You need to eat egg yolks and get your vitamin A. We also, as you know, are big advocates of cod liver oil. But once again, uh, the cod liver oil, most industrial cod liver oil has been completely ruined with overheating and that destroys the natural vitamins and then they add synthetic vitamins back in. So again, it's natural cod liver oil with the natural vitamins in it and then all the vitamin A rich foods. Yes. And when I think about these things, it's always when in doubt, go with nature to me. So there is an intuition that says, well, maybe we should eat organ meats because we clearly know we don't. And I think we know that we're throwing something useful out in industrial farming. Right. And the other factor is milk and dairy. Obviously, we went many, many years without pasteurization. Yeah. And now we're conditioned to think it's gross. But I guess what's the real deal there? <laughs> well, the Weston A. Price Foundation has been the premier advocate for raw milk. And because of that, we've seen it become much more available. When we started, it was available in 27 states, and now it, the farmers can provide it in 43 states. I think we're about to get 44 states. So our goal, of course, is available in all 50 states. And the consumer numbers have really risen we know there's at least 10 million raw milk drinkers in the United States, and it might be quite a bit higher. Hmm. So raw milk is really a superfood. It's Mother Nature's perfect nutrition, especially for growing children. And of course, this is where our focus is. And so our goal is to make sure that whole raw milk from pastured cows, we call that real milk, is available to every child in this country. And you know, Greg, it is really an indictment of our culture that we try to keep this away from growing children. The diet that's being recommended for growing children is a genocidal diet, and I don't hesitate to use that word genocidal, mm. because it eventually leads, you know, you have low-fat, pasteurized milk, which is very allergenic, you know, missing a lot of nutrients, and this eventually leads to infertility, widespread infertility. Well, that was going to be one of my questions for you because I'm always interested in the history of why things are the way they are. <laughs> and in the realm of food and nutrition, it just seems like we couldn't be more backwards. It feels like we've been sold a big lie and become dependent on industrialized corporate food, which is actively making us weak and creating so much brain fog that we can't think properly, which makes us more susceptible to propaganda. Yeah. And we have yeah. poor quality fluoridated water, which also they say makes us docile. It can't be an accident that we're in this mess, can it? No, it's not an accident. And one thing they, <laughs> the people who are kind of backwards, want is to keep us backwards. And they're mostly doing it with the food today. You know, I am all in favor of industry and invention and science. I love computers. I think, you know, all this is wonderful. I love having electricity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love being comfortable and I love living in the modern age because all of these gadgets that we have 
free us up to use our minds and to be creative, whether it's be painters or writers or whatever. But where we've gone wrong is applying that industrial model to our food because we're not machines and we will not thrive on food that's made with machines. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you face this all the time, but people are concerned about pathogens and parasites and bad bacteria. So when we start talking about unpasteurized milk and dairy or even raw meat, this is obviously people's first concern. Is it overblown? Why should they maybe not worry about it quite as much as what they're losing when they overcook or pasteurize food? Exactly. So one of the great victims of the germ theory of medicine has been milk. Now, the germ theory was propagated by Louis Pasteur, and he was a great fraud and cheat. I mean, when you find out what he was really doing, and he completely ignored obvious causes of disease to promote his germ theory, and along with it, vaccinations. Vaccinations is like a corollary of the germ theory. So this made us all afraid of germs. They were evil, and they were going to attack us and kill us and so forth. And then they discovered viruses, and now we have the wily virus that can invade your body and take over and all this, like space invaders or something. So it all comes from this outlook that nature is evil and raw and tooth and claw, you know. Now, we have seen a complete shift, complete paradigm shift in the last 20 years, only 20 years, whereas before we thought that bacteria were attacked us and made us sick, we now realize that we live in symbiotic relationship with billions of bacteria in our bodies. And if these bacteria don't have the right milieu, if we don't have enough of them, we're going to be sick. So what we need to do is eat a diet that supports and nourishes the six pounds of good bacteria in our intestinal tract. And then there's another couple of pounds on our skin. So we need to support these with our diet. And that's one of the beautiful things about raw milk. It's highly supportive of intestinal, good intestinal flora. Hmm. Man, we are off the races now. And it is a real shame that I didn't read the contagion myth before doing this, but I... Well, it's, you can't read it yet because it's not out yet. It's coming. It's coming. Ah, fair, fair. <laughs> Well, I did read a lot of the articles you've written about it, and I am a big fan of Dr. Cowan, the vice president of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And I know Dr. Andrew Kaufman has been on the Wise Traditions podcast as well as my own. Yes. And you've written about coronavirus contagiousness on your blog. And just to quote it, you wrote, is coronavirus a contagious bad guy? Remember that researchers could not show that the dreadful Spanish flu was contagious. The fact that viruses are actually helpful exosomes and that many who test positive are symptom-free makes their role as the perpetrator highly unlikely. To settle this question once and for all, we need to do the same contagion studies that proved non-contagion in 1918. I'd be happy to be the first volunteer. <laughs> and I love the boldness, and I am coming around more and more to this idea that contagiousness isn't as pervasive as it's presented, maybe doesn't exist uh, at all. Well, I think you can have a kind of communication between the body but what makes us stick is either poor diet or toxins. And it can seem contagious. You could all be exposed to the same toxin at the same time, like 5G. That's a toxin. Like arsenic. I'm just about to write a blog on anthrax, which, if you look very carefully, is really arsenic poisoning. And all the sheep get anthrax. Well, they've all been dipped in arsenic sheep dip. And that was going on at Pasteur's time. He, he must have known that this was a factor, but he completely ignored it. Hmm. Interesting. There's so many things you have to start unraveling when you start to challenge germ theory. But <laughs> Well, it's fun. It's interesting. It's fun to take a question. Like Tom Cowan, he took the question, or he took the statement of Rudolf Steiner, this really weird statement that he made that the heart is not a pump. and he 
just thought about it for a long, long time, and he finally figured out that, yeah, the heart is not a pump. And then what are the implications of the heart not being a pump? Well, I think we can do the same thing with water, with contagion. What are the implications of the premise that things are contagious or that they aren't contagious? And then you think about it a while, and and gradually this picture appears of, you know, it's like your new outlook, your new paradigm. Hmm. Yes. And I also have become a big fan of Arthur Furstenberg and his book, The Invisible Rainbow. I know you mentioned that in your articles. Yes. He has made this case, a really compelling case, that changes in our electrical environment, going back to radar and radio waves, have caused huge pockets of people to get sick. And it's always been blamed on a virus or some kind of outbreak. And I guess you've mentioned 5G a few times. You suspect that's the case with coronavirus. Right. And the thing is, it's not a virus. What they're seeing, these tiny, tiny objects that have little spikes sticking out, they're actually called exosomes by another branch of uh, science. And these exosomes help us adjust to poisons and to new environments. And they communicate. Those little things sticking out are like little telephone receivers. And they go around to the other cells and they say, hey, this is happening. We need to make this change or whatever so we can deal with this toxin. And so what they're looking at and calling dangerous viruses are really these very helpful exosomes that help us adjust to new toxins, new environments. Mm -hmm. And I do think we have a certain ability to adjust because we live in an electric universe and the sun itself is changing its output, goes through cycles where it's emitting more or fewer x-rays, for example. Comets, I wrote a blog on comets. Comets are highly charged electrical objects that actually emit x-rays. So they're very dangerous and they can cause epidemics as they go through the sky. And that's what caused the Black Death. So our bodies do have a certain capability of adjusting to changes in the electrical envelope of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Yes, that seems so strange, but I did read that latest article, Comets or Contagions, and there's a big overlap between comet activity and disease outbreaks over the course of the human timeline. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And people were petrified of comets. And the Chinese said that when a comet came, everything changed. People didn't want to live. They questioned everything. Well, that's good. I mean, it's not good that you don't want to live, but The comments kind of shake things up a little bit, and Lord knows we need that right now. Yes, yes. So, I mean, in the coronavirus case, if we trust the numbers at all, we're supposed to have 700,000 dead around the world. I mean, do we think this is all 5G? I mean, there's so many toxins in our environment. I'm always (laughs) saying it's hard to isolate one from another, but it seems like we can say this is something different than what's being told on the news. Well, it's really hard to determine who really has this illness and who has died of this illness. And certainly cofactors, comorbidities, as they call it, make you a lot more vulnerable. But I don't agree with those who are saying, well, this is just a bad case of the flu. It's being really overblown. I and Tom, we agree this is something quite serious, that it's a terrible disease. It leads to hypoxia, which is lack of oxygen. It's lack of oxygen in your red blood cells, so the oxygen is not being carried to your tissues. And then widespread clotting in the body and the autopsies of these victims show that they can't even recognize the lungs anymore. They're so messed up with all these blood clots. So it's something very serious. The symptoms and the description are obviously, this obviously can't be a virus. This is something much more serious than a virus. and. Until or unless we recognize what the cause is and recognize the fact that this is quite serious, we're not going to make any progress. And as you can see, it's just more and more people are getting sick uh, in spite of the masks and the social distancing and all the other crazy stuff. Yes, I read a little piece you did on that, too. And uh, it seems clear that you find the mask issue to be as silly as I do. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's we need to unmask the masquerade. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little smarting because I got into a 
an argument with somebody in a store the other day who wanted, I wear the mask in, but I keep my nose uncovered because otherwise I can't breathe. And Oh, she was going to make an object out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I know. It's a, uh, it's a weird hill to die on the mask yeah, thing. Right, but <laughs> Right. But you know, we try, well, my husband and I live on a farm. We have a farm so we can live a fairly normal life, but we have to have the utmost sympathy for people confined to apartments in the city, constantly exposed to 5G, you know, very bored, no work. <laughs> you know, we've just done a terrible, terrible thing to the populace. And the thing is, we've known since the 1970s that this particular frequency or this particular range of frequencies that 5G runs at is very dangerous, just causes all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad people are waking up to that connection. But the Weston A. Price Foundation also released an article from Dr. Stephanie Seneff, where she talks about other potential factors, like we kind of mentioned that there are some, but she mentions that all the COVID-19 hotspots share a common thread of a high rate of adoption of fuels derived from biomass, nearly all of which can be predicted to be heavily contaminated with glyphosate. And that's something we've talked about a lot, glyphosate. But I guess it could possibly be a factor here, too. Yes, I think, you know, if you're extremely healthy and eating the right foods, plenty of saturated fat, got the right kind of water, good cell membrane integrity, I think you can withstand 5G to a certain extent. I don't think you should be sleeping with it, but you could certainly withstand it during the waking hours. But once you put the glyphosate in the mix, it becomes much more difficult for your body to deal with this. And for two reasons, well, there's many, many reasons, but first of all, there's certain types of lung surfactants that are very rich in glycine, which is a, an amino acid. And what glyphosate does is substitute glyphosate for the glycine, and then these lung surfactants don't work. Then in all of your cells, these barriers and membranes and so forth contain a lot of glycine, and that's what forms these beautiful hydrophilic surfaces for your water to structure itself with. Hmm. As you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of broth, bone broth, because it contains, bone broth is basically melted collagen, and it contains a lot of glycine, which we need to have these well-functioning, highly integrated, strong cell structures in the cell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're also pretty critical on eating some raw fruits and vegetables like kale. Why is that? <laughs> oh, we found a way to offend everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, especially California. Yeah, here. right. So how did our ancestors eat these dark leafy greens? They never ate them raw. They cooked them. I know Dr. Tom Cowan was in Africa, and they always made stews. Like all traditional people, they made stew with the organ meats and the bones and everything. And then they put in the, I think the word was something like lechuga, but it wasn't that. But And that was the leafy greens, and they were put in and cooked in the stew. So that's the way we need to eat these foods. The cooking gets rid of a lot of the toxins in these plants and also liberates the minerals so that they're very available for us. But the kale chips and the raw kale smoothies, I mean, this is a fast track to digestive disorders. Hmm. That's so interesting. And they don't taste good. I mean, I mean, who says, oh, I just can't wait to have my kale smoothie? <laughs> You've got to force yourself to drink this awful stuff. It's true. It's true. I've <laughs> choked it down with the best of them. But, you know, really nicely cooked greens with fat back in them are delicious. And when it comes to vegetarians in general, I've heard you say that it's actually irresponsible for them to have children, which is a bold stance. But if developing babies need these nutrients, then I guess you just got to call it like it is. Yeah. I'm not blaming the vegetarians. I'm blaming the people who are promoting vegetarianism, usually in the pay of the food industry, because let's face it, they make a lot more money on plant-based foods than animal foods. And they would just love it if we all went to a plant-based diet. And I think it's really egregious 
that they are promoting vegetarianism as the cool, moral, you know, hip thing to do to teenage girls. Because this is the age when you need to be eating a really nutrient-dense diet to prepare yourself for having healthy children. Now, I know the average teenage girl today is not thinking about having healthy children. She's thinking about her boyfriend or, you know, being pretty and all these things, which is fine. Instagram. Instagram, yeah. I have no quarrel with this. Those are teenagers. That's what they're supposed to do. But I guarantee you the day will come to all of these young women when the thing that will be most important to them is having a healthy baby. And usually by that time, it's too late. If they've been a vegetarian for too long, eating soy foods, eating a low-fat diet, it really takes a lot of work to recoup the damage or to repair the damage that's been done to your body so you can have a superbly healthy baby. And I can't tell you the number of women who've said to me, I wish I'd heard your message when I was young. Because I have a child or children who have a lot of health problems, and I know it was because I was a vegetarian or vegan. Hmm. Man, it is really sad that we can't trust these big institutions that are supposed to be looking out for our health. Like we have that Eat Lancet report telling us the plant-based diet is the way of the future, and it feels like they're promoting a kind of third-world poverty diet as some kind of new health trend. That's exactly what it is. They do not want a population of high-functioning, intelligent people. Hmm. Because they know that's the end for them. They do not want this kind of population. They want a population of serfs and servants mm -hmm. and people who have not reached their optimum genetic potential. And that's what we teach, how to eat how to eat during pregnancy, how to prepare before pregnancy, how to eat while you're breastfeeding, and what baby's first food should be in order to achieve the optimum expression of the genetic potential. And this is maybe a shocking statement to you, but to me, that's everyone's a genius. That's their potential. I don't really believe there's such a thing as a genetic defect. What's happened is a generation or two of poor eating that disrupts the expression of the genetics. I believe that the genetic blueprint for each individual living on this planet is perfect. Perfect for perfect looks and perfect thinking and perfect strength and perfect health, perfect personality, but it's not manifesting mm -hmm. for most people today. And I also think we're going to end up with a real divide, a kind of aristocracy of the healthy, and uh, then, you know, the people who are not so healthy. Right. Yes, I've heard about that. And the division is widening, that the elite are yes. looking more like uh, Nazi youth, and we're looking more like troll people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then we have our beautiful Weston Price babies with their broad faces. They are just an absolute joy and a blessing to the families they incarnate into. These wonderful babies, healthy, strong, intelligent, perceptive, discerning, discerning. They are the future and they will create our future. And that gives me hope. Yes. And you do get a ton of feedback and you have a ton of testimonials from people who have taken up this diet, particularly during pregnancy, and the results speak for themselves, right? Yes. In fact, I got an email the other day from the mother of twins. The twins are about 10 years old now. And she was not able to breastfeed, so she used our raw milk baby formula, which has cod liver oil in it and a lot of good things. And she said these Girls are just the picture of health. They didn't need braces. They are intelligent, happy, fun to be with. But they got a good start in life, and that's what we need to teach everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, another trend I was going to ask you about is this beating of the drum that animal farms need to be whittled down due to global warming. I mean, this is being said a lot these days, and I'm sure it's probably true for factory farming, but that doesn't mean get rid of cows. Well, they want to get rid of cows. Actually, my experience is they want to get rid of all domestic animals. There's a real campaign against cats, for example. Huh. Now, a cat is a sacred animal, 
we have a, my husband, ha- I have a grass-based dairy farm and we couldn't farm without cats. The cats get the mice and allow us to have grain on the farm. But, you know, this whole thing about animals contributing to global warming, <laughs> when you do animal husbandry properly, which means that you move the animals, you don't keep them in one place. So we move our cows every day to new pasture. We move our chickens every day. We move our layers every four days. We move our pigs every few months. You actually improve the land. You create topsoil. We started off with a farm that had no topsoil. And now we have about eight inches of topsoil. And that's just from the managed grazing. The other thing about this kind of farming is it doesn't require a lot of grain. Requires some, but not huge amounts of grain. So you don't have to plow up the land, use glyphosate, and all these things to grow grain. So to me, beef is the most environmentally friendly meat if you do it right. So we had the Department of the Environment on our backs because we were grazing in an area they said was wetlands, and we weren't supposed to do this. Well, the law does allow us to do this, and we finally won, and they went away. But I pointed out to them, I said, you know, you're you're after the cows producing methane, but did you know that the biggest producer of methane in the whole planet is wetlands? And they were speechless when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. That's where most of the methane comes from is wetlands. Huh. Well, it really does feel like the government is coming for small farmers. Do you feel that way as a farmer yourself? Well, I mean... You have to hold your ground. They would shut us down if they could. They tell people what we're doing is illegal, which it's not. So you do have to know what you're doing and know how to defend yourself. But you also, I mean, the number of small farms is actually growing. And so I think that's a good thing. Oh, nice. I had heard that they were collapsing at a scary rate, and particularly in Europe. And maybe that's true, but I mean... This whole experience of COVID has got to make people realize, hey, I better get a a tighter food supply locally. Yes. I need my own farm, and that means I need to have a farmer I buy food from. Yes. I'm very concerned about Europe. They have closed down millions of acres of farmland with their regulations and put so many small farmers out of business. And I don't know how Europe's going to feed itself. Mm, very scary. And Another aspect of kind of the things that are being promoted is this plant-based meat or this Franken-meat thing. It seems like the Impossible Burger, it's plastered everywhere, and uh, I don't know why they're pushing so hard for this kind of stuff. Well, a lot of the big boys, the Bill Gateses and the Musks and all these people have invested in this stuff. And I kind of have to laugh because I don't think these investments are going to pay off for them. I don't see a lot of people buying this stuff. I mean, you eat it once and and you never eat it again. It apparently has a very metallic taste. It's full of additives, full of MSG, full of antibiotics. I mean, there's nothing clean or green about it. So I, <laughs> I'm preparing myself to have a nice celebration when these companies go out of business, which they will. <laughs> Fair enough. And... I'm sure you get this one a lot, but how do we approach friends and family who have bad diets and horrible health? Patterns are really hard to change, and sometimes it feels like they got a drug addiction because you face a lot of denial and hostility when you try to have these conversations. How do you get started? Well, this is a conversation, this is a discussion that I've had with many, many of our chapter leaders. And Sometimes I'm invited to, like I've had somebody say, I really want my women's group to hear what you have to say. I want to invite you to my women's group to speak. And I always say, no, it has to be people who come to me who want to hear me because food is the most sensitive subject. It's more sensitive than money or sex. Hmm. And you just can't answer people's questions if they haven't asked the questions themselves, if they're not ready for it. And you go to a woman's group and say you shouldn't give margarine to your kids. They need butter. And basically you've told them that they were terrible mothers. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? So I always say to the chapter leaders and to anyone in this field, if somebody's ready, they'll come to you and then you can give them the information. Mm -hmm. But you can't force it on people. And you can show by your example. You can certainly show by your example. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and great point. I think the vaccine conversation runs into that same issue of, well, I've already vaccinated my kids, so I don't want to hear about it. Right. They close their ears off. Right? Mm. Because there is a certain amount of blame there. They put that stuff into their child's body. They didn't ask any questions. They believed the doctor. They put that higher than their children's health. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, very sensitive subject. I try to say to people of my age group who are having kids, look, I don't want to debate you about vaccines. I just want you to read what's on the insert. And then if you feel comfortable, do your thing. Yeah, right. But ask questions first. Right. And it's not often that new parents do. And even if they see the side effects on the insert, pediatricians will say, well, those are rare. But rare isn't a scientific term. Shouldn't we be pretty specific? Because the stakes are pretty high. What do you even know about the baby you're about to shoot up? Because you seem a lot more willing to gamble than you should if you actually care about each and every child. Let's just say that for every 30 vaccines, there's one reaction. And for every 100 vaccines, there's a severe reaction. Okay, so you think, oh, well, my chances are pretty good. But children today get about 50 vaccines before they're five years old. So that means your chances of having a severe reaction in your child from one of those vaccines is one in two. Mm. That makes it look a little different. Yes, that's a great way to approach people with that info. Mm. So as we're starting to wind down here, I wanted to have you give the people a little more information about the foundation, the resources, and just how to support it. If the people have enjoyed what you schooled us on today, what can be said about what the Weston A. Price Foundation is up to and how they can support it. Okay, so the Weston A. Price Foundation is a member-supported organization. We publish a quarterly journal, and that journal is really the latest and best information that you can get on nutrition and health. And our latest journal, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's all about COVID-19. We have a huge website, so go to the website. WestonAPrice.org. On the right-hand nav bar is a beginner's tour, which might be fun for you to take. But it is a huge website. Almost any medical condition that you're looking for, you can find something on the website if you do a search. So that's member-supported, and I would highly suggest that you become a member. It's $40 a year and receive the journal. You'll also notice on our website that we're having a conference. We're going to have a live conference, no masks, no social distancing. And we have three big stars coming to the conference. On Friday night, we'll have Andy Wakefield with his new movie called The Act. On Saturday night at the banquet, we're going to have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking about vaccines. And on Sunday for the closing ceremony, we have Del Bigtree. And plus many, many other wonderful speakers and panels and uh, big exhibit hall and so forth. So all that information is on our website. As for me, my website is nourishingtraditions.com. It's my blog. And I'm definitely an iconoclast. I'm sure you would realize that, Greg. (laughs) And then my books are, you know, on all the bookstores and websites and everything, but Nourishing Traditions, the Nourishing Traditions book of baby and child care. I have a Nourishing Traditions cookbook for children. And then finally, my new book written with Tom Cowan is The Contagion Myth. And that would be great if your listeners would pre-order that book so we can make a splash when the book comes out, which will be about the end of the month. Nice. I'm sure that will be right up their alley. And I'm glad you mentioned the conferences because I was curious if the regulations on gatherings was going to interfere, but it doesn't seem like it's going to. Well, the governor of Georgia has said he will not enforce any mask mandates if they are passed locally. And and the hotel has assured us we do not have to wear masks inside. Very cool. Well, I'm getting cabin fever and I've already talked to the wife. I think we're going to take that trip. Oh, that'd be wonderful if you'd come. Yeah. Yes, it'd be great. And also wanted to point out, you do have a a podcast that the foundation produces too, right? Right. Our podcast, we try to make our information available in as many formats as possible. And some people like to listen rather than read. This podcast has been amazing. We've had over 3 million downloads so far. 
and podcasts from lots of wonderful speakers, including many that you've interviewed yourself. So. <laughs> awesome. Wow. Well, we really covered a lot of great stuff. I'm really happy we were put in contact with each other. Big thanks to Rachel and Claire. They know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> I am now a proud contributor to the foundation. And oh, thank you. Thank you. Of course. And Nourishing Traditions is the new framework I'm going to try to build off. So big thanks again and keep up the great work. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. You got it. Have a good one. Thanks. Sweet Sparrow Academy Shyamalan twist, people. Yes. I am very happy with this one and very fortunate to have found Sally's work and the Weston A. Price Foundation. I didn't actually find it, to be honest. I had a listener named Rachel who let me know that one of the Corona-themed THC episodes has circulated through a really impressive group of people. It wouldn't be right to put them on blast, but it was very humbling to hear that some folks with pretty notable resumes liked an interview that I did. But it was through this chain of events that I even learned about Sally and the Foundation, and I'd been talking about Tom Cowan so often that when I heard he was the VP of the Foundation, and I'm going to be introduced to the President, well, I figured we were going to have a good time here. By the way, if you remember an episode we did with Dr. Stephen Hussey, I think it was called The Heart Deception. It was about the heart being more like a dam rather than a pump, and it's the charge in our blood that pushes the blood cells through the body, and it's not this one fist-sized organ. Well, Dr. Cowan wrote the book on that. It's on my list to read. But I definitely thought that new thinking behind the heart is really interesting and makes a lot of sense in the context of us being electrical beings and charge being more important than conventional knowledge would suggest. Fold in Dr. Pollock's work too, ether physics. Yeah, it can get weird, but that stuff rings true to me. And <laughs> we might be splitting the audience like the Red Sea once again this week, but that's starting to feel... A bit unavoidable, so I'm just getting more used to it. That said, though, it's been very common over the years that a guest I have will be here to talk about something in their wheelhouse, and somewhere over the course of the two hours, they'll nonchalantly drop something in about how we all need to be vegan, and if we feed on animals, it's because we've been indoctrinated into Satanism, and we're just extending Satan's boner whenever we eat a steak or make a form of blood sacrifice the cornerstone of a so-called nutritious meal. Yeah, maybe they didn't put it like that, but vegan and vegetarianism has been casually dropped by a lot of our guests in interviews that were set up over completely different topics, and I typically just let it go because it's not worth derailing a whole conversation over. And sometimes just letting it go gets misconstrued as an endorsement. But let it be known, I've always been firmly in the camp that Sally is. I like and respect a lot of researchers and previous guests who are in the vegetarian camp, but it's not for me. And this campaign to push a plant-based diet today feels a lot like the pushing of a warped food pyramid in the 90s, or letting the sugar industry tell us that it's the cholesterol and the trans fat that's killing us. The conventional advice tends to be typically a 180 from the truth. It's advice that makes us foggy-headed, weak, and lazy. I don't know a lot of vegans that I look at and think, wow, picture a health. I gotta do what you're doing. Do you? <laughs> sure, there are some examples of high functioners and athletes that make it work, but I could bury you in an avalanche of examples to the contrary. And again, look at what the billionaires are investing in. It's not raw dairy, animal fats, and the themes of today's show. Look, all right, so organ meat is important. Well, what does the factory farming industry just discard? Broth. You need it. Well, where are you going to get the bones? Do you even have a bone guy? Have you had bone broth or liver in the past decade of your life? 
And if it's high quality, natural, grass-fed, happy animals that are the key ingredient to optimum health, well, that's something that has been systematically harder and harder to find for years. It's been attacked, basically. They put a lot of energy into making sure that meat is not high quality, that it's injected with dozens of things, that the animal's not given a grass-fed diet and definitely not living a happy life. And what about unpasteurized dairy? Illegal for a long time. I think it's still illegal to transport over state lines. And to that I say, well, it's very nice that the same people who send 18-year-olds to kill strangers in the Middle East or die trying, fluoridate our water, and perpetuate the erosion of a livable wage are keeping us safe from the milk. What would we do without them? <laughs> I mentioned on shows of podcasts past that my friends and I were splitting a half cow here locally in San Diego, and it went great. We did get bones, and we did get the organs. I've yet to look up a good recipe for beef heart, but... <laughs> It's uh, something I'm going to have to do this week. But what I also found interesting that I learned from the farmer that I got the cow from is that even for a lot of beef to be sold in retail, they have to do things to it that don't happen to this custom beef that I got, particularly inject it with extra lactic acid and I guess some forms of preservatives that are requirements for the USDA. So we have this organization, we think, oh, USDA, that's got to be the best, right? But it's not the most natural. It's not the least tampered with. So it seems like, at least from my experience, if you get a local grass-fed, pasture-raised cow or pig, you can get it from just slaughtering to vacuum-sealed, get all the organs, and you're off to the races. But going back to pasteurized dairy, you know, Sally mentioned a little synchronicity, and I actually have one of my own in that when I first moved to California and went to go through this new process of getting a medical marijuana card, I went to this doctor's office where the woman behind the counter would always have you sit in a waiting room, typically alone, and she would start a video that I thought was going to be relevant to what I was there for, but it was a presentation of Sally's about the pasteurization conspiracy, as it were. And I say always because I'd have to go back there year after year and renew it, and sure enough, same situation. Go wait in the lobby, walk out, start a tape, it's Sally talking about pasteurized milk, and then the doctor would always be ready for me just as it ended, curious enough. But it was only when I saw Sally's picture on the Nourishing Traditions cookbook that I put these two things together. So I guess the universe has been trying to introduce me to Sally's work for a long time. But as always, if you liked the free first hour, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus to hear the full second hour of this interview and all the interviews I do around here. Hundreds of shows in the archive. And I know, everything's a subscription service these days, but it keeps the show ad-free, it keeps us focused on our guests' work, and back in the day, when we were operating on a donations basis and doing the whole money bomb thing, and people started donating $500 or $1,000 when I would interview the guests that they'd suggest, and then nothing when I didn't, it was weird. And that's no way to live. <laughs> so I democratized it, spread it all out, and it just seems to be like the best system that we have for independent podcasts. In the old world, we'd tip a server eight bucks for bringing us a lasagna and a glass of wine. And I hope THC is worth at least that to you. But in today's second hour, we talked about quite a bit of fun stuff. You know, when I'm first talking to someone and they're a serious person with a career in the subject matter, it's nice to wade slowly into the weirder stuff and see if they're really into it or not. You don't want to go too far with someone or talk about things that are maybe too radical for their position, but Sally was pretty comfortable with some very 
deep and wild depths, I think. We talked about vaccinations and cutting off our access to the spirit world, Waldorf schools caving to political pressure, a spiritual motive for many of the agendas we see, epigenetics, how Sally thinks the coronavirus death numbers have gotten so high without contagiousness. We talked about native immunity, this really great piece she wrote about rethinking the history we have of Native Americans just being decimated by disease when they met the white man. That was good stuff. Beyond organic farming and spirituality in farming, ancient preservation methods to increase nutritional contents of our food, and a little thread about why MCT oil is so hot right now. So a lot of provocative stuff. And Sally answered questions so succinctly that we got to much more than I expected. Sometimes with certain guests, I only get in two questions an hour if I'm lucky. But I loved it. It's great to learn about an organization that checks off so many of the boxes that I do and can be an ongoing resource for a health and wellness paradigm that rings most true to me. I also look forward to going to that conference, a mask-free gathering. Can you believe it? (laughs) But as far as the Weston A. Price Foundation goes, I did see that they are having a flash sale for the next 10 days. So if you do want to support the foundation and stay current with the work they do, now is not a bad time. If you liked this one, let Sally know. Also important, I'm sure the new book is going to be great too. We need to be able to think and function at a high level if we want to rebuild the world, right? So honestly, start now. Even if it has to be the next generation, start building better babies, as it were, and getting them better education despite the system's best attempts to dumb them down. (sighs) But I guess that's it from little old me. Big thanks again to the people who helped make this happen and to Sally for her time and dedication. I've done my part. Your move, diet dictocrats, nutrient deprivers, and raw dairy deniers. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. Nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy such a difference between us and the dead It's doubling your time